you're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Big Ben Strong on the board. The Prime Minister says 140 million COVID-19 tests are going to provinces in January. Where were they last month? Here's Scott Thompson! You know, what we were watching Dr. Kieran Moore uh, earlier on this week at his news conference uh, talking about, uh, obviously, the impact this is having on people coming into uh, hospitals and hospital settings with COVID-19 or related illnesses or such. Uh, but now we're starting to see, uh, and this is virtually in every industry, as Dr. Moore said, uh, it was like just over 30% of, uh, of industry, all sectors are reporting uh, high absentee races, uh, uh, rates of about 30, 33%, which when you think about it, that's one in three. That's, you know, that's one third of the population is ill. Uh, from from the the pandemic and and then you add on to that uh, the fatigue the mental health and what the healthcare system has already been through and now they're they're ill like everybody else is thirty uh, percent of them are ill as well and you can imagine the sort of stress this puts on the EMS system uh, hospitals everything everything. Uh, and many have asked, how do we get more healthcare workers into the system? How do we get more nurses into the system? Let's, you know, this is a, a, uh, an incredible career, uh, when the situation isn't the way it is right now, uh, a very rewarding career. How do we get more people into this? Uh, and of course, the effect that this pandemic has had on all of that. Let's bring in uh, bring in Aaron Aris, a registered nurse, member of the board for the Ontario Nurses Association, and registered nurse at St. Mary's Hospital in Kitchener. And with us now, Aaron, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, Scott. Thanks for having me. So we certainly know the stress on the healthcare system. Uh, it was there before the pandemic. It's obviously just uh, accentuated during a pandemic. How do we get more? people into the healthcare industry? How do we get more people interested in nursing? Well, you know, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to become a doctor, be anything from a, a personal support worker right up to a doctor. What is the key to getting more people into this profession? That's a really great question. I think it is sort of a multifaceted um, answer. But uh, I think, first of all, we need to certainly deal with the working conditions within healthcare. Um, things are really uh, in crisis right now within healthcare. Um, so, what is the answer? More money, more money from the feds to give to the provinces, the provinces to give to healthcare. Um, what's the answer here? When we look at this, there is a 25% vacancy rate right now, although reports are lagging within Ontario. And that creates uh, conditions where we, as uh, nurses in particular, uh, we are looking after more patients than we ever have. We are looking after sicker patients than we ever had. And we're finding now um, that nurses and healthcare professionals are burnt out. Um, more support needs to come. Um, certainly uh, over the past couple decades, uh, we, we feel as a profession uh, that we have been taken advantage of. Uh, certainly there's a Bill 124 that has uh, uh, really, it's an oppressive wage um, bill we're not even making cost of living increases at this point. Um, and there's really not a lot that entices people to stay within the profession or enter into the profession. Uh, obviously, uh, health care, the number one issue for governments, the biggest expense of, of governments. Um, and we need, yet we need more bodies. That's what I'm hearing from you. You need more bodies 
to, to do the work. And we need to retain our expert uh, nurses and healthcare professionals. Mm. We need to have people there who can mentor the people coming in to support them so that they understand what the job entails and how to, uh, you know, become an expert themselves. Where do you see this going post-pandemic? Post-pandemic, I'm very concerned. Uh, nurses are leaving the profession in droves, um, and, and there's not a lot keeping them there. Uh, they're getting sick themselves. Uh, we're having to, again, battle to uh, have proper PPE and uh, stay safe and well within our workplaces. Um, so, so I'm very concerned about what post-pandemic holds. Has the pandemic changed our view of the healthcare system and those who work in it? I think this is not a crisis that started um, with the pandemic. Yeah. It was there before the pandemic, but the pandemic has only worsened it. The lack of support um, is very palpable and very obvious uh, to certainly our members. What about uh, bringing in? What about bringing in or allowing more international uh, nurses, doctors to to be a part of the system? I understand that if you come from another country, there's quite a few hoops you have to jump through, which is understandable uh, to get the job here. Is there anything we can do there to ease those numbers to get more bodies? I don't really know the, the, the best answer to that, but I, I do think there's work that could be done there, certainly, if they're qualified to work here, yes. All right, Erin Aris with us, a registered nurse member of the board for the Ontario Nurses Association, talking about the uh, impact the pandemic has had on the healthcare employees uh, during this pandemic and what it means for us moving forward. Erin, thanks for the time and insight. Uh, be well. Thank you. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Canada has finally reached a $40 billion agreement in principle to compensate First Nations children harmed by a underfunded child welfare system. Uh, this is uh, ending a human rights challenge, which was launched like 14 years ago. Uh, this is the largest settlement in Canadian history. The government is setting aside $20 billion for compensating Indigenous children and their family members and another $20 billion earmarked for funding services uh, for Indigenous children. Uh, the first is a Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling from September 2019, which found the federal government willfully and recklessly discriminated against Indigenous children living on a reserve through the underfunding of services. Uh, Ottawa set to pay $40,000 each to roughly 50,000 First Nations children's, uh, children and their relatives. The second ruling is from the November 2020. It expanded the scope of Jordan's principle, a rule that uh, pledges to provide First Nations children with the services they need when they need them rather than compartmentalizing the services, basically, you know, arguing over who pays for them, the provinces uh, or the government. So uh, good news all around. Let's bring in Sydney Woodhouse, a regional chief member of the executive committee of the Assembly of First Nations and is with us now. Cindy, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How significant is this agreement? Well, you know, it's, it's um, you know, our people have been fighting for this for, for over 30 years. And, you know, it's going to change a lot of a lot of people's lives. And it's going to change the way that First Nations will finally be able to be in the driver's seat when it comes to um, child child welfare issues and child welfare issues within our communities. Uh, it's significant. It's it's the biggest in Canadian history, as we had said. So how? How has or how is the Indigenous community viewing this? How are they how are they uh, reacting to this? Well, of course, there, you know, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, until now, it's been, you know, the negotiations have been happening. But now there will be um, um, regional processes of engagement sessions across the country over the coming months until we reach that final agreement. And uh, there'll be a lot of discussion. So I, I just think... Uh, there's a lot to discuss and a lot to, to debate and a lot to do to, to move forward. 
Uh, obviously, speaking with many Indigenous leaders over these issues over the years, many are skeptical about anything until they start to see action. Um, how close are we to that? Is there concern that this looks good, that sounds good, it, it, it's it's an, it's a nice press conference, but by the time the rubber hits the road, um, nothing's happening? <clears throat> So immediately, the good thing about this one is is we're going to see results right away. Um, usually, uh, right now, when a child say taken from their family, most and and not because of parenting, most of the time, most of the time, it's because of poverty. And they take uh, they take this child and they disconnect this child from from their family, and then this child turns eighteen and they they kick them out the foster home, and then they don't have anywhere to go, and so. Um, what this means yesterday and immediately is that they're going to up that to 25 so that, you know, maybe they have a chance to go to university and finish college and, and find their footing, you know, in, in, a, in this difficult thing called life. Um, also, it means that there'll be prevention money immediately um, starting April 1st, 2022 to ensure that, you know, if there is issues um, amongst our, you know, in, in, in First Nations communities or, or with families that there'll be prevention money there to try and help the family rather than remove the child. So um, this is, a you know, it's, it's, it's a step in the right direction. It's a big step in the right direction. Uh, $20 billion for victims and families and such, $20 billion for the system. Are you convinced that we can make the systemic changes that are needed to that system to, to, to uh, I, I guess you can't guarantee, but hopefully make this better, guarantee a more positive outcome. Well, you know what? I think if, if First Nations, you know, if, if we're given the tools to do it ourselves, there's always been people right from residential schools, the 60s scoop, uh, the Indian day schools, and now the child welfare system. People are, all those, that colonial patriarchal thinking and pushing of the policies on us has to stop. We need to be able to, take care of our own first nation and first nations in our communities. We have the, we have um, the capacity with amongst ourselves. We know who our families are, who our people are, and we could take care of ourselves. Like, um, you know, people need to uh, governments and people need to step out of the way and let us, let us govern ourselves truly hmm. on such important uh, I, issues. I, I, I understand this isn't a one size fits all. There's, there's room for, there's wiggle room there for negotiation and such. Every situation I presume is different. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Like there, there are going to be um, different people. First Nations are, are as diverse. You know, we have um, many different language groups and cultural groups across our country. We're all, you know, we're, we're diverse just as Canadians are diverse, but we're also the same in many ways. But, different communities are going to want to do things slightly different and that's okay. And, and, you know, I may, um, you know, there's lots of best practices out there already. And, and a lot of the, those people are paving the way for, for many other people to, to change their system, to, to follow those best practices that have been working. After this settlement, Cindy, what is your message to Canadians, both, both indigenous and non-indigenous? What are we to take from this? Well, I think that, you know, there's, we, Canada has a, you know, we all have a dark, a dark history. And I think that, you know, um, hopefully the prime minister, you know, we we're going to be pushing him to, to make a public apology in, in parliament. And we want him to do that because these kids deserve it. These families deserve it for this, the harm done by this. And it's so significant and we're changing. I, I also applaud them though, because they're the ones that have, um, put the money forward that was needed to get this done and to start moving towards a new direction when it comes to child welfare. Cindy Woodhouse with us, regional chief member of the executive committee of the assembly of first nations, Ottawa yesterday unveiling $40 billion, a deal compensation on indigenous child welfare, uh, both 20 million to the victims and 20 million uh, to improve the system itself. Cindy, thanks so much for the time and insight. And of course, all the hard work you've done on this over the years, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Take care. All right. We've heard the term long hauler, I guess, since the beginning of uh, this pandemic, which, man, coming up to, uh, well, COVID-19, it was December of uh, 2019. I guess we first heard of all of this uh, affecting us more by the winter, February, March of the following year, uh, coming up to the second year and entering the third and hearing a lot of long haulers, those that have had the disease, COVID-19, and are still suffering in some way from ongoing symptoms.
symptoms. Let's bring in Angela Chung, PhD, General Internal Medicine, University Health Network, and Sinai Health System, and with us now. Angela, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you, Scott. First of all, let's describe this. What is a long hauler? How do you know if you are a long hauler? Um, It is someone who have had COVID and still have lingering symptoms after three months. And those symptoms have to last more than two months. And the WHO is um, uh, using the term post-COVID condition. So two months after uh, being infected, so it, it could really take, even even though you test negative, it could take uh, several weeks to get over this and get it out of your system. Um, yes. So if someone actually has um, long COVID or the post-COVID condition, um, it, we are talking about really three months out uh, from the acute illness. So obviously this is something that we've been hearing about since the early stages of this pandemic when we knew very little. What more do we know about long COVID? Uh, That it can affect anyone, uh, including children. Um, And, um, you know, some in in the early days when we were looking at this, we thought it was going to affect more um, people who were in the ICU, uh, critically ill patients or acutely ill patients that were hospitalized. But we learned quite fast that um, it can affect people who were never hospitalized. Um, and the more symptoms that you have, the more likely that you're going to have long COVID. Uh, that was my next question. To those that perhaps don't get the disease as severe, are they as likely to uh, to experience this? Or, or is it those that are in a more precarious situation and have a tougher time with the disease itself? Uh, the, the, the people who actually have more symptoms initially, um, and uh, there's a study looking at how many symptoms and using the cutoff of five symptoms. Now, that cutoff is very arbitrary. Um, but um, the, the authors, the, the group found that uh, those who have greater than five symptoms initially, so if you count fever, cough, runny nose, that's three, um, headaches, that's four, um, and you can add another type of symptom, um, then you are more likely to get long COVID. What about those that were vaccinated or fully vaccinated versus those that won't, is it, or th- that were not? Um, any sort of evidence there as, as from one to the other? Um, so that's still in the early days, but um, clinically what we have been seeing is uh, those who have been vaccinated have milder symptoms. And so if they were not as sick in the early days, um, they may not have as much long COVID. How concerned are you about the long-term effects of this disease? Obviously, it's, you know, we've heard the term, you know, we're building the plane as we're flying it. We're trying to do the best we can with the information uh, that we have. How concerned are you, Angela, that, uh, you know, a year from now, two years, there's still going to be issues about this? Um, I think there will still be issues. Um, We are seeing patients who are, you know, two years out and some patients still have problems. Um, So, you know, especially with the Omicron wave, uh, a lot of people are affected um, with uh, COVID-19. And so uh, the only way that we know of um, in order not to get long COVID is not to get COVID. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's really important to... um, uh, you know, take precautions and get vaccinated. Some have said that uh, this can be more of a mental illness, and I don't mean to diminish this in any way. I'm just playing devil's advocate here, uh, and that this could be the traumatic response or experience of of uh, having the disease, or especially if you were in an ICU and had to go through ventilation and such. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I, you know, there is a lot of mental health issues. However, I don't think long COVID, it's purely mental health. Um, I like the analogy of someone who, you know, we we actually have patients like that that I've seen. Like if they were running a marathon, um, you know, prior to having COVID, but now they can only, you know, they're short of breath when walking a block. And so I, you know, it is understandable um, that they are anxious about how come they can't walk a block without being short of breath. 
Wow, there's still so much of this that we just don't know yet. Uh, Angela Chung with us, Ph.D., General Internal Medicine, University Health Network, and Sinai Health System. Angela, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Sure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Making their way around the big round table and out of the newsroom is uh, Lisa Pileski and Dave Woodard joining us. Uh, good afternoon to Table Lights. Good to have you all here, Lisa, Dave, and Ben. Howdy, howdy. Hello. Let's start with the poll question of the day because it's what we always do. And feel free, you can jump on our Twitter account and uh, add your vote to all of this. Uh, poll question of the day, do you think classes will restart by January 17th? Uh, of course, today the kids started online learning for two weeks, scheduled to go back uh, in two weeks. Right now, 81% of you are saying no. Uh, how do you feel about this? Lisa, we'll start with uh, you. Do you think the classes will restart come Jan 17? Oh, I am so hesitant to even make any sort of predictions because I remember <laughs> really? uh, uh, we uh, we were on a round table uh, before the winter holidays and uh, Ken Mann and I were both uh, being asked, do you think do you think remote learning will be in place uh, after the Christmas holidays and uh, both of us said nah probably not and yeah. we were wrong so I don't I don't know I really don't know I want to say that they probably it will be extended uh, I, I don't want to say that I I would say that actually I think it probably will be I don't I'm not happy about that but it just seems like things just are getting worse and worse Dave, want to weigh in? Your thoughts? I'll play the role of optimist. I think they will be open. I think that uh, for a couple of reasons. I think that uh, we, we're not seeing that uh, for especially little children, we're not seeing that it's a, it's a very uh, devastating uh, variant for, of COVID-19. We, it is being passed around, but it's not uh, nearly as bad as what it was uh, previously with Del- Delta, at least at what we're seeing. Um, I-, I think that there's a lot of complaints. And I think over the next three weeks or the next two weeks, we're going to hear a lot from parents. We already are about uh, some yeah. of the challenges that they're facing. So I think uh, really what's going to happen is, it, and it may, may even come down to a political decision over a, a medical one, but I think that they will go back to class. I agree. I, I think they will go back. I think that what is being done now is obviously a precaution because of the Omicron variant is just so transmissible that it's, you know, you're even seeing vaccinated people get, get, you know, come test positive and come down with it, although a much more milder version. Um, but, but again, I, I think that, uh, along with that issue, it's also now there's like a 30% absentee rate, uh, across the province because in every sector, there's there's people getting sick, and now that has hit uh, the healthcare system uh, as well. So, you know, whether that translates to schools, I- I'm not sure. And again, we're going to debate a little later on malls versus schools. But I think uh, that we're at the point now where we can do this. And once we realize, I, I think these decisions were made when we weren't really sure uh, how severe Omicron was going to be, and and just so concerned over the transmissibility of it all that uh, rather than take the chance and overload the hospital system they're going to pull back for a couple of weeks but i'd be very surprised if they go past the 17th ben you want to weigh in on this i want to believe that they're going to be coming back after these two weeks i really want to believe it now the thing is we don't really know how far they were making this decision in the sense of this could be right teetering on the edge of Oh, is it better safe than sorry? Maybe, maybe not. So it's possible that it's just past the line of let's make the call, let's play it safe, and then, oh, things are all right. We can open back up. Yeah. And let's be honest, if you're a politician nowadays, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't here. Uh, and a story that uh, I caught that you guys were reporting on, if malls can stay open, one listener or, or one of the uh, reports you were playing, if malls can stay open, why not schools? Um, and, and that's a great question. Um, although, let's be honest, the malls are running at, at a reduced capacity. Uh, that being said, why are the malls open and the schools not? Others would say, you know, it's a different scenario. Uh, 
uh, you know, there's teachers unions and, and, and other, uh, factors at play when it comes to the schools that are not necessarily in the malls. But what are your thoughts? We'll start with you, uh, on this, Dave. If malls can stay open, why not schools? It was one of those things that I think really was in my mind when they were deciding whether or not schools should be closed for these two weeks is, is do, does everything ha- else have to close first before you close the schools? We've heard often uh, from yeah. experts that say, you know, the schools should be the last things to close. Um, and so there is that out there. But especially when you're looking at uh, the story that we're talking about was a protest at Limeridge Mall. And you talk about how giant Limeridge Mall really is in terms of space between, you know, the the, the, the floor to the ceiling. You've got two uh, stories. You've got mm. a, a ton of space to move around where you don't have that in a classroom um, that they haven't been able to get cohorts down to where they need to be in order to keep that physical distancing. So it, it's two, it, it's, it's really looking at apples and oranges, uh, but it was one of those things that I think does need to be considered. Hey, maybe we should be holding the classes in the mall. Absolutely. that would be really fun for the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, kids, your gym class is in the food court today. If you get get three candles from Bed Bath & Beyond (laughs) and you subtract two... That's it. That's very cool. You get to take a nice parting gift home to the parents. Wouldn't that be fun? Uh, Lisa, what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, uh, schools and malls. No, I definitely agree. And I see, I, but I do sense the front frustration of parents who are, who, yeah. you know, they've been going through this and, and the students, the kids as well. It's, it, it is frustrating to see that malls and pri- private businesses, you know, the, especially the bigger businesses that are able to operate where it's the small businesses that continue to be negatively impacted by things like this so it seems like the little guy is always is is just really the victim of these big closures and it's it's unfortunate and that includes kids but i mean i want you guys to be right with all of you saying that schools will be back in person in two weeks (laughs) i i appreciate the optimism and i'm glad you guys are more optimistic than me don't hold us to this by the way yeah all right uh do you know someone who has or uh has tested positive with covid19 how was the ride i told our story uh, before Christmas, uh, my wife and I both came down. Kids tested negative. They were fine. We were out of it, luckily, by the time Christmas rolled around. By the time we actually got our test PCR test result, we had all uh, back, which was positive. We had already tested negative on a rapid test. Uh, that's how long it was to get the test back. Uh, that being said, uh, do you know someone who was with it? And, and what was the experience? Dave? Yeah, I've known a couple of people, and it depends on the on on what what uh, on how the person took it. There there have been people that I've known that have been like you. It it wasn't very uh, very harsh. They they were able to you know kind of go about. They were tired. Uh, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And I've also had people where it was kind of touch and go at times where they weren't really sure if they would have to go to the hospital or not or, mm. or they'd have to be in an ICU. So I think it, it's, it really just depends on the person, whether there's comorbidities, uh, really even what variant you've got. So I think that there's, there's a lot of different reactions. And it's, it's, for most people, I think you know, we're happy that right now it's not so bad, but uh, it doesn't appear to be that bad. Uh, but that's not the case for everybody, obviously. Lisa? Yeah, I had some family members who unfortunately did uh, come down with COVID over the holidays, and it, it's terrible time for it, for sure. Yeah. But um, the vaccination definitely helps. I know people who are vaccinated, it, it is so much more different for, for them. I mean, it, it is, you're able to get through it a lot easier for if you're vaccinated. So it really does highlight the importance of getting your shots, getting the booster when you can get yep. it. And, you know, speaking of which, if you're 50 and older, Center on Barton is taking walk so go get your shot. It's so well run at Center on Barton. I got mine there. It was great. Wow. All righty. Yeah. I'm picking <laughs> up on that. Oh, by the way, people are emailing us to say thank you for these little uh, pops up, uh, pop-ups up that you are announcing. All right. We've got no time left, but I want to get your take. A one word, two word. Quebec Sunwing party flight to Mexico uh, will not be flown back by the airline. Is that the right decision? You saw the people partying on the plane, apart, I guess some social media influencers. Uh, and uh, Sunwing has said, nope, ain't coming back. Thoughts? Dave? Uh- Yeah, for me, I think it's one of those things where, first of all, it's terrible to have to be stuck in Cancun for an extra day. Uh, But the other thing is it's a private company. Sunwing can do whatever it likes. Yeah. Lisa? Going to say the same thing. Private company, they can do whatever they want. And if you uh, don't follow the company's rules, 
you uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Exactly. I don't think a lot of people have a lot of sympathy for them. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been asking a lot on this show since uh, we came back. Um, why are we lining up for boosters again? Why is there a backlog trying to get into a pharmacy, a clinic, hospital, whatever you have, uh, to get your booster shot? And we also know the same situation with testing kits that, you know, we were, was running around, uh, before Christmas trying to get these done, trying to find them. Uh, same thing after the uh, prime minister announcing today, 140 million new tests will be coming to the provinces in January, but that did nothing to help us in December. Why are we late to this game? I was thinking that once we got all this mass vaccination coming in in late summer and early fall, that then, you know, supplies would be uh, uh, permitted in, in pharmacies, hospitals, what have you, and then eventually booster shots would start and we just continue on. But here we are in the same place. So why did we not start vaccine boosters sooner than what we did, which was December? which was when we found out about Omicron. Let's bring in Justin Bates, Ontario Pharmacist Association, and is with us now. Justin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thanks. Great to be with you again. Justin, let's get right to the supply. Uh, Do we have enough vaccine in order to boost everybody now? So we are experiencing throughout Canada supply shortages and interruptions with the Pfizer vaccine. So what you're seeing right now is essentially what we call a washout. So pharmacies that have inventory already of Pfizer are prioritizing that for the age cohort of 18 to 29 based on NACI recommendations. And as they go through that inventory, it's being replaced or backfilled with Moderna. And Moderna has thus far been prioritized for the 30 and over age cohort. So there's enough Moderna to meet that need, but we are seeing continued vaccine hesitancy, people that prefer one over the other or don't want to mix if they had a Pfizer and want to get a Moderna. So that's creating some some backlog. And we're also seeing vaccinators uh, be in short supply, whether that's in the public health clinics or through pharmacies, because people are coming down with infections of COVID and having to isolate. Mm. And there's a general labor shortage across the healthcare system. Should we have started boosting earlier, Justin? You know, it's a great debate, and we as a province, along with the other nine provinces, we're waiting for the uh, NACI recommendations and, you know, even the time intervals when it was originally set at six months between your second and third, and then they dropped that down to third, three months. And there's been this constant uh, challenge with recommendations and the timing of it. It's hard to say now. I mean, with Omicron, it looks very obvious that we should have started the third doses much earlier. The government uh, started with the 70-plus and then 50-plus categories, and then very quickly, within a week uh, of announcing those expanded eligibility requirements, made it 18-plus. And what you've seen now that they did that is the capacity challenges. All of a sudden, massive surge of people wanting appointments, and they now have to wait you know, sometimes two months or a month out. Um, so it's you always have to manage the demand with the capacity and the supply. And it's you know not a perfect formula, as we have seen. I think many thought that once we started the mass vaccinations for the second dose late summer, early fall, that this would not be a problem anymore. I think many thought that, you know, the portfolio that was coming in was going to be enough to to pad the pharmacies and the clinics so there wouldn't be a supply uh, demand, a supply situation. And, you know, even if we did uh, have just recently lowered uh, uh, limits, are, are you surprised that or did the pharmacies have enough uh, capacity for this? I mean, it seems that we, we lost precious time during, uh, you know, September, October, November, December. Yeah, without question. I think the uh, a smoother rollout would have opened up the third shots earlier. Uh, and if we followed the similar uh, phased-in approach that we did at the beginning of the rollout back in March, mm. where it went down the different age cohorts, it would have staged it differently rather than just opening it up all of a sudden and having that uh, surge in demand for 18 plus. The other consideration here is what we've seen is science that's evolving in real time based on access to data and guidelines have changed. And that's because everyone's looking at, you know, even the need for a third shot. So when we started this process, 
back in March. No one, you know, we thought maybe we'd need boosters. There was certainly some evidence uh, suggesting that, but it wasn't definitive. So as we got closer to the fall, and obviously with Omicron, it became very clear that a third shot was required because the science was showing that the uh, immunity starts to wane after six months. But you need a sample size and you need to be able to analyze and assess that. And so sometimes that lags. The data takes time to catch up to the policies and changes in guidelines. So it's not a perfect uh, transition because of that. And, uh, and you know, even four shots. Now we're looking at four shots for mm. high priority groups in long term care. It's plausible that we'll have a similar situation. We'll have that ebb uh, right now that we have in the peak in demand for third shots. We'll have that lull and we'll be right back at it with four shots uh, at some point. Well, hopefully there's no lull between the third and the fourth, and we won't be going through this again. Because, again, you know, you're talking about four shots. That's Israel, who seem, you know, six months ahead of us at any given time. The same with the United States. And we know there are hesitant, uh, hesitancy issues, but there certainly isn't a supply issue. They can go in almost anywhere and, and get a vaccine. Did we have enough vaccine in September to start doing this? Yeah, I don't think we did. I mean, the reality is even with pediatric vaccine, we're seeing some of the challenges. Um, the The way that the ordering has worked uh, has been in waves and uh, the demand and the supply hasn't always matched um, accordingly throughout the, the rollout. You'd like to see a more sustained uh, rollout and not have those uh, breaks. Um, in, in some ways, that would help uh, make it smoother and, and manage demand accordingly. And I think the reality is that we're very close to this being an endemic and needing annual mm. boosters. I, I think that's just the reality of another variant of concern. I think we would formally meet that definition of an endemic. And we've got to learn to manage this and live with this and not have the constant capacity and supply challenges. We've got to have a smooth, sustainable rollout that continues, much like we do with the flu. Um, and that booster, whatever that interval ends up being based on the science guidelines, uh, we need to make sure that we're ready for it and not caught off guard and constantly playing catch up, which is what I feel like we are in that mode right now. What advice do you have, Justin, for those that are still looking for a booster? Well, I think the, the options are still um, to go to the public uh, provincial portal, check on that, and local pharmacies. If you have a local pharmacy, they each have their own booking system. Um, there are a number of walk-ins. We've seen pharmacies that have prioritized groups like 50 and over and educators and students. Given that we're in a lockdown or at least a partial lockdown, we need to use this time to make sure that the 5 to 11s are getting the vaccines and, um, you know, 12 and up uh, and prepare for opening schools. That's got to be our number one priority. I would love to see a mandate uh, from government on uh, schools reopening, requiring vaccinations uh, and up to third shots and N95 masks. That's the only way we're going to make use of this time that we have over the next two weeks. Um, and people should continue to try to go through their pharmacies and public health units to get the vaccine. Justin Bates with us, Ontario Pharmacist Association, talking about getting you your booster or first or second if you still need it. Justin, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. The Prime Minister just seems to think you can just throw this stuff on the doorstep and then run away. Uh, and then he points to other liberal provinces such as Nova Scotia who did a better job of distributing tests. And from what, what I understand they did is they gave tests out ahead of time to people that didn't necessarily need them. And then when the mad rush came before Christmas uh, and people started getting sick, uh, then they ran out of tests like everybody else because they gave them to people that didn't necessarily need them at the time. So, uh, and oddly enough, Nova Scotia today is moving to online learning and asking for military help. So I, I, I've just been astounded how the Prime Minister has literally just wa wipes his hands, washes his hands of this stuff, and then blames it on the provinces. And again, we heard it today in a very breathy, dramatic, but lackluster uh, speech. My producer, Liz, and I were watching this from different locations and emailing each other. And they, What is he saying? What is he even talking about? And, and basically said that they were sending 140 million new tests to uh, rapid tests to provinces in the month of January. That's four times more than they sent in December. Well, that's when we needed them most was in December before the holiday. Not that we don't still need them now, but why now? And why, again, are we waiting in line? Well, we hear of Israel working on the fourth dose. 
Well, you take a plane ride to the United States and go to Disney, you'll get one there probably. Or if not, the drugstore across the road or the Walmart. Yet here we are again, waiting in line, standing around wondering what's going on and, and who gets the blame? The provinces. And the prime minister, well, you know, we're doing everything we can for you. Spring will be better, he says. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Should we have started boosting earlier? Like, we didn't start boosting till December, when the Omicron variant was already being reported. Um, I think many thought after the mass vaccination in late summer, early fall, that this stuff would just be flowing in drugstores and Mm -hmm. hospitals and clinics everywhere, like it is in the United States and Israel. Yet here we are lining up again. How, How is this prime minister getting away with this and blaming it on the provinces? I don't think he's necessarily getting away with it. He's just blaming it on the provinces, and he's hoping that he can mitigate any sort of damage or attacks that he gets from it. And to some extent, it has worked for him. I mean, he wouldn't. It is working quite well, Michael. I would say. Wouldn't you say it's working quite well for him up to this point? Well, he was reelected last year, so I think the answer would be yes. It's unfortunate, but you know, sometimes pointing the finger of blame at a different in a different direction works to your advantage. Now, sometimes it doesn't. But in this case, it has, and it has repeatedly. And, you know, it's one of the things, you know, fool me once, you know, it, it, it really works into that statement in the sense that people have been fooled by this prime minister now two times during COVID and three times overall in the past few of federal elections. But again, ultimately, the problem is that no matter how much the provinces push back, whether it's a right-leaning premier like Doug Ford or a left-leaning premier like John Horgan in B.C., there doesn't seem to be an effect whatsoever. They try. They try to explain the fact that, look, it starts at the top. It starts with Ottawa after everything is you know, managed and brought down and shuffled to our provinces. Yes, then it's our burden. But the problem is that we are waiting for them because it starts at the top. It doesn't start with the provinces. It certainly does not start with cities, towns, and villages. It starts with Ottawa, like it does for every other country. It starts where your your national government is, and then it goes down. So it's easy for Justin Trudeau to say, well, look, here's our big number of the day. Here's what we're sending them with their big number of the day, and then it's up to them. And you made a point quite correctly before you brought me on about Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia was the province that he highlighted that it was doing an Oh, he's highlighted job them. He's highlighted them for two weeks. Uh, you know, two that weeks. that's the province that's doing it right because they're obviously and, a liberal province. Yes, and it's not the case any longer. It's again, it's not an attack on Nova Scotia. It's just that unfortunately, with now I think, believe it or not, the sole exception to Saskatchewan, everybody else virtually, and I may be missing one, has online learning or has had a, a certain amounts of provincial restrictions towards businesses, individuals, retail outlets, etc. So no, it isn't going well. And it's fine for Justin Trudeau to continue to sing Kumbaya all the time, that we've worked together for months, for years, and we're all working and striving together. Yeah. Yeah, we're trying to. But the problem is, if Ottawa doesn't do this efficiently, everyone down below, including the provinces, cannot manage it properly. Why didn't Ottawa just mail out all of these kits to every family like they do the census or the election information? Why, you know, yeah. and, and then avoid the provinces altogether. But it looks as if the prime minister is because the majority of the provinces are not liberal. He's waiting for them to fail. You know, and if he's not, he's unfortunately left the impression that that's what he's trying to do. It's a good question, Scott. You're not the first one to have asked it. Others have asked it, too. The problem is that all of us do not have an answer. I don't know why he hasn't mailed them out. We have spent so much money during COVID-19 that the cost of of mailing out these tests or allocating the $140 additional rapid tests and sending them to people who need it or who register or whatever, it should be done and it should be done quickly. And I don't know why they won't do it this way. I really don't understand it. We know that mistakes have been made at every level of government, and that's fine. One day when this is all over years from now, 
We'll sit back. We'll write reports. We'll figure out the good, bad, and ugly and what we should do differently when it happens next time. Because, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what happens with COVID-19, pandemics do occur. Health pandemics do occur. There will definitely be another one. And to expect that there'll be a break between, say, the Spanish flu of 1918 to now will not happen, especially because there were smaller pandemics in between. But you're right. I mean, he has handled this extremely poorly. And for that, while it's fine for him to say that Ottawa's been doing it perfectly, we care about Canadians, we're doing everything right, they're not. And it appears as if he's thrown his arms up with the provinces. He's like, that's all I can do, man. I don't run the health care system there. I've, you know, I've driven the truck to the, uh, to the door, and now it's up to them. Yeah, I mean, look, once it's in the province's hands, I agree. Then it's, it's obviously a provincial yeah. responsibility. That, that part's correct. The problem is that he can't say that I'm doing everything right, and once the provinces get it, that's the end of it. Yeah. He's not doing it right from the very beginning. And if it's inefficient at the very top, it's not going to be efficient below. That's how it yeah. basically works. And I don't know why he doesn't get it. I, you know, privately, not that Justin Trudeau is a genius. He's not. He's not a, he's not a great political strategist. He doesn't have a strategic mind. His understanding of stratcoms is terrible. But he knows behind the scenes that there have obviously been failings in Ottawa. He's talked about it on a very light basis, as he often does with fluffy language and moves it in a different direction. That's fine. That's his style. But he knows that there have been major deficiencies in Ottawa in the way they've been handling COVID-19. The fact that liberal supporters or left-leaning Canadians either see it and ignore it or don't see it at all is up to them. Because, unfortunately, the problem starts at the very top, as I've said several times now in this interview you can't ignore that. You can criticize Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, Scott Moe, John Horgan, whoever you like, Francois Legault in Quebec for putting out a curfew. You can go after all of them and say they've done things wrong, and they have, but the problem starts at the very top, and it's the prime minister who's been elected, God knows why, three times in this country, even though he is probably the most inefficient, ineffective, and mediocre prime minister we have had in this nation's history. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. As always, Michael, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. We remember uh, the Jeffrey Epstein case and where that all went, and uh, obviously his uh, death, and and then of course the case of uh, Glenn Maxwell, and she convicted uh, in aiding him in his uh, sexual misconduct and such, and was uh, charged and convicted of that uh, just very recently. And now Prince Andrew still being dragged into uh, this situation as well. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer with. Newberger and Partners LLP and on the line now. Joseph, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. How are you? Happy New Year. I'm doing well. Happy New Year to you too, Joseph. You know, it seems when this whole thing was, when Jeffrey Epstein was still alive or just before his death and such, everybody was talking about this case, especially the people that were in his circle and who allegedly uh, spent time with him and such. And then by the time we got to the Ghislaine Maxwell case, nobody seemed to care about it. Are you surprised it didn't get the same sort of attention that the whole Epstein thing did? No, I mean, but, but, you know, it's so important that this trial uh, was somebody who was a facilitator, but it didn't have the same panache as Epstein. That That's reality. We, we have a system now where the most um, outrageous allegations and the most public individual garner the most attention. So it doesn't surprise me, but this trial is very significant. And uh, with regard to uh, Maxwell's convictions, your thought on those before we get to the prince? So I think they're significant. Uh, she was a, convicted of being a procurer and a, a facilitator of Epstein's exploits and his abuses. So this is very significant in the prosecution uh, narrative of what happened. So that is very significant. And when it comes to other individuals who may or may not have been involved in contact with underage individuals, this spells, in my opinion, uh, a very alarming tone for them. So when we talk about Prince Andrew, who's coming up for deposition in his civil case, this is a significant issue. I mean, 
the fact that we have a conviction here and we have evidence that supports this scheme that was overall a procuring of young ladies were victimized by wealthy, powerful individuals, you've got a foundation solid for a civil litigation or prosecution against other people. It's very significant, in my opinion. Uh, there's chatter that um, there was a deal set up initially that uh, would somehow protect uh, those that were involved. Uh, for example, a prince in uh, Prince Andrew. Would any deal that Epstein had signed would that would that uh, would that clear Prince Andrew or at least stop him from having to uh, to face this? Okay, so you raise an excellent point here. So in the settlement with Epstein uh, regarding Miss Jufre, which is the uh, complainant in the litigation against Prince Andrew. Mm-hmm. He is alleging that there is a clause which prevents litigation. It's it's like an estoppel clause. Uh, that's a legal term for saying you can't sue somebody if they come within a category. Part of that category was people who are royals. So it's very... It's, <laughs> Everybody listening to this might go, you know, this is crazy, but it's a very broad term. But he may be included in that clause, which would have stopped him from being prosecuted because of the settlement with Epstein. And that's significant. And that is what the judge in the United States is dealing with right now, because the application by the uh, uh, lawyers for Prince Andrew is to dismiss the application from that plaintiff that he is absolved of any prosecution because of that that clause. So that's very interesting. We have to see how he'll rule on it. I'm not sure. I think it's way too broad. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how the judge decides that. Uh, obviously, uh, the defendant talked about Prince Andrew sweating, uh, and this is n- now we're hearing what's called the sweat defense and that he cannot sweat, apparently, and that will get it thrown out. What is your opinion on all that, Joseph? Yeah, that's not going to go anywhere. You know, uh, it's it's ridiculous. This is a very, look, we have to take a step back. It's very clear that based upon the evidence that we have seen in the case against Ms. Maxwell, and we know against Epstein, there was a ring and a concerted effort and a scheme for individuals to be procured for sexual abuse. That's pretty much settled now. Other individuals who may be caught in that scheme, we have to see how far that goes. But we have to look at the settlement agreement and what other evidence exists. Because a lot of these cases have been brought by way of civil litigation. And, and, you know, as a defense lawyer, I always have great skepticism when we come to money over prosecution. Hmm. So I think we got to take a very measured approach to assess this. And I think it's important to take one step at a time to assess the facts in the case. But I really want to hear what the judge in the U.S. Will gonna, is going to say about that clause. It's a very badly, poorly worded clause. But depending upon that ruling, we will see what the outfall will be. And, and for Prince Andrew, if, if the judge decides that that clause does not protect him or does not provide immunity from civil litigation, there could be a lot of uh, further proceedings from that. Hmm. Joseph Newberger with us, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP, talking about the case of Prince Andrew and, of course, relation to uh, the Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein cases. Joseph, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Happy New Year. Be well and be safe. If you are an electronics freak, if you are a uh, tech freak, uh, you do, uh, you no doubt know about uh, the Consumer Electronics Summit, which takes place every year in Las Vegas. Uh, Petrena Pulsawan is with us. He's been at the summit previous uh, previous years and is there today as well. Uh, Petrena Pulsawan is the owner of Petrena Media LLC and with us now. Petrena, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, thanks for having me on here live in Las Vegas. It's uh it's amazing to have you. I hear I've never been to the show, but I hear it's it's quite a freak show. There's uh it's an unbelievable show to attend. So to so to someone who's never been there, describe what this is like. What what's this event like? 
It's basically you're surrounded by tech, right? It's all about things that you supposedly haven't seen before. CES is kind of known for this. It's a place where companies come to unveil their latest and greatest technology for the first time. And as you said, I've covered this. I was a reporter, news reporter in uh, Las Vegas for many years. So I've covered this every year. You know, reporters kind of fight to cover this because you really get to see the coolest technology here at this fair. So how have you seen it change over the years? Well, I think things just got smaller, which I think that's kind of the key mm. to technology, right? Like, I remember the first year when, when drones first came out. I think this was like 10 years ago now or something, and I just saw a drone here just today. This is the first day of CES here this year, and it's smaller, it's cooler, and things are just, you know, you can wear a lot of things now, you know? So, so that's kind of been the cool kind of tech trend that we're seeing this year. Even wearables, they've been around for a long time. Many predicted, I remember having people who had been to the show uh, maybe 10 years ago saying this was going to be the next big thing, this was the next big thing, and then it sort of it sort of subsided for a bit, it kind of flatlined, and now it's big again. Is that accurate? Yeah, you know, and I think it's not just things you can wear, it's like things around you. You know, like I was talking to a company based in Seattle, but actually their CEO is, is in Montreal, so there's a lot of kind of can- Canadian contingency here. But they're all about this kind of uh, simulated, you know, like your mattress topper or your car, you know, things around you that can be like, kind of affect the way that you feel, you know, kind of feel like it. they have this kind of technology where, if you're wearing something or something around you that makes you feel like you're, you have caffeine inside of you. So it gives you energy even without taking it in, you know? So just a really cool stuff that people are talking about here at CES. All right. So uh, what's new this year? Uh, any surprises for you? You just gave us a great example there, and maybe you can expand on that. But what's hot this year? I think electric cars, a lot of people talking about that. There's this one hall kind of dedicated to like automotive stuff and just so much talking about electric cars. I was talking to the CEO of this company called VinFast and they're actually based, they started in Vietnam. So this is an Asian based um, car company that is now kind of about to go all electric and they're trying to sell their vehicles here outside of Asia and the U.S. for the first time. So that's, that's really cool. Anything new on batteries, speaking of electric vehicles, because that always seemed to be a stumbling block in charging and such with EVs. Anything new there to report? Gosh, no. I, well, to be honest, I don't know much about cars. I just know they're cool. I just saw like something about like an alignment system where it's like you can do it remotely or something. I don't know. But I think if wow. you look at all kinds, if you're a car person, you're probably going to find like all kinds of gadgets here. So I understand that some of the large players aren't there this year. Is that all COVID-related? Why are some staying away? Yeah, I mean, that's the reasoning that people are giving out. Like Microsoft, Intel, Google, GM, they're all kind of canceled, you know, even though CES is choosing to go forward. But these companies are doing stuff virtually. You know, they're saying, hey, you know, they want to keep it safe. This is a safety thing. So we're still seeing their signs everywhere. It looks like they're here, but they're actually not sending their people here. Does that allow for more attention to be spent on the others? Or like you said, they're there in spirit and with graphics anyway? Yeah, you know, and I think that's kind of what um, YCS is moving, choosing to move forward. I was hearing the CEO was talking about how, like, all these smaller businesses were going to hurt them by not having the show this year, you know. So I think that's giving them the attention. Like, this one small company based out of Seattle is talking to, they only have about 30 employees right now. They're saying that they've been there six hours, and it's already worth it for them being here in front of some tech leaders. So I think that's that's kind of a good thing. Many have said that that it's more about a meeting of the minds. It's more about networking for the people that are there. Is, is that well? And, and again, that's the way it is, I guess, for any trade show. But is, is that yeah. still the underlying uh, atten- intention here, or is it about the show? I think it's both, but I think for a lot of these small businesses, it's it's about building their brand, right, and get and, and business, and and it's still about getting the technology out there and which is fascinating but also the bottom line is they they got to make it as a company right so being out here could mean make or break for them if they get the right partner or the right um you know sponsor or venture capitalist to to take notice of their of their products so as a veteran of this show what stood out what one product what one things uh, service would have you stood out at this year's show well, you know, I was just saying I'm not a car person, but the one thing that kind of stood out of my that I saw this week was 
the BMW actually has a uh, color-changing paint technology. So as it's driving, oh, man. it's changing colors from white to gray. And to me, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow. that's in- How does it do that? It's some kind of paint technology. I'm not really quite sure, but I, you know, maybe the angle once you go one way it changes to white, and then the other angle it changes to to gray. It's, it's neat. Check out social media and see hashtag car changing, color changing cars. I think it's going to pop up. Wow, if they could only put that into a remote, you know, you go, you, you drive out, you're feeling in a certain mood, you come back, you're in a totally different mood. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, Petrania Pulsawan has been with us, owner and founder of Petrania Media LLC. Thank you so much for the time. Have fun. Be well. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.